on to Nehemiah. Now, this week I've had a couple folks come up to me and say, you know what, we're really interested in, in this Nehemiah, and we can't wait to see where you go with this. And I have said to them, you know what, I can't wait to see either, because I have no idea where we're going in this journey of Nehemiah. But I am excited about it. But if you weren't here last week, uh, and if you didn't listen to it on the podcast or online, uh, then let me just say a couple of quick things about who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is an exile. Um, he's living in Susa, which is the winter resort for the king. Um, and uh, he's a cupbearer, which means that he has quite a bit of influence. He's kind of a powerful person. Um, and, and he hears that the life back in Jerusalem is not good, that the walls have been torn down, that the gates have been burned, that things are in shambles. It's a disgrace, quite frankly. And so he begins, as we said last week, with prayer. He begins with a prayer of confession. That is much of the prayer. It is a confession that he is a part of. And he's asking the Lord to please help uh, them, to please forgive all of them and what they have done. And then he begins to pray for the restoration, really, of the people there of Judah, of Jerusalem. And at the end, he prays that God would grant him mercy and grace as he goes in to talk to this Man, And we don't know yet who this man is, but we have a good idea at this juncture that this man is the king, Artaxerxes, which is really kind of an unfortunate name. It's hard to say repeatedly, so I might just call him Art from now on, if that's okay with you. So we have Artaxerxes, and then we get to the second chapter. Let me warn you, I always like to warn you, this is a long chapter, so I will do my best to read it quickly, but clearly nonetheless. And so let's begin by looking at Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I, I is Nehemiah, carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen was also sitting beside him. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber, to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
And the only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by the night by the valley gate, past the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by the way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good, but... When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we his servants are going to start building. But you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, be with us this morning. Speak to us of a story from long ago that it might speak truth to us on this day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So I'll be honest with you that when I started reading this chapter and looking at it a bit carefully, I wondered if I hadn't actually stumbled upon something from the Lord of the Rings. Reading something like, send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Or, I went out by night by the valley gate, past the dragon spring and to the dung gate. How can you not feel like you're reading something from Tolkien? Am I right? It's very otherworldly, really. It's not often that we talk about, you know, the dragon's gate or spring, I should say. It's a bit odd, which reminds us, of course, that the Old Testament is very different than the world in which most of us live. Actually, in which any of us live. And so, as we think about these stories in the Old Testament, one of the things that we know then is that we have to try to unpack it. We have to try to decipher a little bit more than we might otherwise what exactly it means, what's going on. For instance, in the very beginning, Nehemiah tells us that we are in the month of Nisan, right? That's not April, that's not August, that's Nisan, which is in the Jewish calendar. Now, that's important because do you remember what month we were in in the first chapter? Chislev. Helpful, right? Which means, and I'm sure you already know this, that four months have passed since the first chapter. So four months have passed since Nehemiah first heard what was going on until he finally goes before the king. We talked a lot about last week about the importance that Nehemiah can reflect on on good leadership. And one of the things that we discern very quickly is that Nehemiah is a patient 
leader. One of the things that I have seen throughout my time is that one of the big mistakes leaders oftentimes make is that they are impatient. And while leaders need to have a sense of urgency, a lot of times, I've seen pastors do this a lot, especially when they first get to a place, they want to hurry up and make changes. They want to hurry up and do things. And Nehemiah has taken his time. He has been praying and he has been planning. And so finally, the king, King Artaxerxes, he wants a, uh, some wine, which means, of course, that Nehemiah is going to be the one who goes and gives him wine. And Nehemiah tells us that he was sad. He was demonstrably sad. The first time that he had ever showed sadness to the king. And that's important to know. You see, uh, scholars will tell us that when you're around the king, you don't want to be sad. Right? Because the king thinks if he's the king, everyone should be happy. He wants everyone to be happy. Everything's great because king, you are, because art, you are the king. You are the best. We love you. And it's interesting because last week, right, we talked about, and we've talked about this many times, how it's the, the pressure of society uh, to look happy, to act like everything's great, to post only wonderful things. Well, that's not a new thing. Right? For a long time, right, there has been pressure to act like everything is great and to smile and to be happy. And Nehemiah, of course, felt that as well. But not just because of the fact that the people around him would have all said, hey, everything's great. There's the king. But because, quite frankly, he could be killed at the hand of the king if he went in there and looked sad at all. And so here we have Nehemiah. He's looking sad, but Nehemiah is also very shrewd, which means he realizes that while it's risky to look sad, that that sadness could also be a catalyst for the king to ask him what's going on. You know how this works, right? It happens to me with some frequency. I'll be sitting on the sofa. One of my girls will come by. They'll plop down next to me, and they'll be like, <sighs> And I usually don't like to say anything at the first side just because it's just a game that I like to play. And so just, to, you know, it'll usually take maybe 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And then again, they'll just be like, <sighs> and you know what they want, right? Which is for you to say, what's wrong, right? It is a catalyst for conversation. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing, right? He's clearly sad, right? And it, it works, right? Because the king says, what's going on? Literally what he says here is, why is your face so bad? Which is just a great line, I think. Why is your face so bad? And as soon as Nehemiah hears this, he tells us that he is very afraid. Why is Nehemiah very afraid? Well, A, probably because he knows that he could be killed for his face being, quote, so bad. But also because he knows that this is the moment that he has been waiting for. This is the moment when he finally has to make the request of the king. And it is not common for a cupbearer or anyone to be making a request of a king. And so in that moment, he says he prayed to the God of 
heaven. This is not like the prayer that he's been doing for the last four months. This is what people call an arrow prayer. You've probably done these prayers when you have in the heat of the moment, you know you have no time to kind of fold your hands, get on your knees, close your eyes, bow your head, but you also know that you desperately need God to work. And so he quickly does this arrow prayer and he's about to make his request. And you have the sense, at least I do in my head, that as soon as the king said, what is your request? That everything got still. That the conversations were kind of hushed. That the waiters and the servers kind of stopped in their tracks. That the soldiers leaned in wondering if they were going to be called on. That the court jester stopped juggling. I'm pretty sure court jesters didn't juggle, but that's how it looks like in my head, right? That the ball drops and everybody waits to see what is going to happen. And so he begins to make his request. And did you notice that he begins, of course, by saying, may the king live forever, right? There's nothing like buttering somebody up before you ask them a question. We always know that our girls are going to ask us for something whenever they say, you're such a great dad. I'm like, all right, what do you want, right? May the king live forever. And then he goes on to say, why shouldn't I be sad? The city of my, uh, of my ancestors' graves, it's in ruins. And, and what's interesting is that he doesn't actually say Jerusalem. He says, may the city, and even later he'll say the city again. He doesn't say Jerusalem. Why? Well, maybe it's just an oversight, but... Most people think it's because the reality that, that, that just in the previous book in Ezra, the same king had called to a halt all the restoration of Jerusalem because of the fact, as the king said, King Artaxerxes said, this city has a history of rebellion. And so Nehemiah, who is very sharp, he begins to craft it in such a way that he doesn't actually have to say the word Jerusalem. And then we're told... This is quite odd, all of a sudden, that there are women, there is a woman there, not just any woman, that it's the queen. Now that's also very strange because A, a queen wouldn't usually be in this setting, and B, what's the point of just bringing up the queen? But there are many who would suggest that it's probably because the queen had some kind of influence in this. In fact, in the reign of King Artaxerxes, women had an inordinate amount of influence when you compare it to other kingdoms of other kings. And so perhaps Nehemiah has been thinking this through and making sure that the right people are there. And so he begins to talk a little bit about, you know, well, we kind of need to go. This place is in ruins. And so, so the king says, how much time do you need? And of course, he knows exactly how much time we need. And so he tells them that. And then Nehemiah does this. He begins to slowly, after he gets the first approval, he begins to grow the questions. Did you notice that? He, he says, oh, that's great. Now, mm, you know what would be helpful? Maybe I can get a letter that makes sure that I can get through. And gosh, now that I have you, king, um, we're going to need some timber. So there's a guy, his name's Asaph. You know him. He's a keeper of the king's forest, right? That's how you have to say it. And, and so, you know, I'm wondering, can we maybe get some timber for these things and for the house that I would like to live in? Do you notice he starts small and then he gets larger? It's like when your teenager asks first, well, can I stay out, you know, 30 minutes later than the curfew when the parents say, okay, sure. And then they go, you know, the conversation, oh, you know, I mean, maybe it's be like an hour. Is that cool? Oh, okay, great. All right. And then you just kind of keep going and you keep pushing it until you finally, there's a, there's a stop. And by the end of the time, you, you now have an hour and a half later. Does that, has that never worked for you when you were it worked 
no, it didn't work for me either. But I felt like it should. And so he just slowly begins to kind of keep growing and growing and growing until he has all of these things. And so Nehemiah's like, oh, this is perfect. I have all this stuff. And so then he begins to go on this journey and he begins to head out to Jerusalem. And he has these letters and it's a good thing. But he not, has not only the letters, he also has these soldiers that the king has given him, which both gives him protection and makes him feel like he's really important. The officials come. The officials don't like it. What are their names? Sanballat and Tobiah or something like that. Yes, so I've been working on that, trying to remember that all week. Sanballat and Tobiah, and, 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 and they don't like it. They're not happy. Why are they not happy? We don't know. But we're going to guess it's because they're in charge. And now all of a sudden, Nehemiah is going to come, and he's going to be in charge of Jerusalem. And they don't like that one bit. But Nehemiah doesn't seem to care. He goes on. He gets to Jerusalem, and he doesn't immediately start doing things. He's not told anybody yet what he's going to do. Right? He holds on for three days, and then he goes on a night ride, right? Only with the animal that he rode on and a few people. He didn't want anyone to know. And he goes, and he begins to do all these investigations, and he says, okay. Then he comes back, and then later, at some point... He finally says, all right, everybody, here's what's going to happen. First of all, let's be honest, this place is a disgrace. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why does he need to tell these people that these people live there? They know what a disgrace it is. Not always. Maybe you've noticed that oftentimes when people are in a bad place for long enough, they begin to no longer see just how bad of a place they are actually in. Right, I, I've shared this before. It happens sometimes with my, uh, at my own house. Well, my house is fine, so please hear me. But, 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 but it's usually only when we know that we're having guests over that all of a sudden I see the stain on the sofa. All of a sudden I see the scratches on the wall. All of a sudden I see the paint that's beginning to chip away on the door. It's always been there. But all of a sudden when I start looking, when I start thinking of what it will look like to somebody who's never been here before or who was a visitor, all of a sudden I see just just how bad it actually is. Sometimes it takes somebody new coming in all of a sudden to be able to speak truth and reality to what is there. And so he says to them, this place is a disgrace, but did you notice it? He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer disgrace. He doesn't say you or me or I. He says us and we. An effective leader always works in community. They're on the same team. It must have worked because, thanks be to God, Nehemiah is very clear. This is because of who God is and what God has done. They all agreed to it, but not everybody is happy, of course. There are always going to be naysayers, and sure enough, there are those who say, this is horrible, this is never going to work. They mock and they ridicule him, but he has none of it. I love the way the message Put it, message says like this, Nehemiah says, you can keep your nose out of it. You get no say in this. Jerusalem's none of your business. And with that, the second chapter ends. Now, I don't have a lot of time because the passage was long, but I knew that I wanted to unpack that chapter anyways to help you all to get a, bit, a little bit better sense as to what exactly is happening but I do have enough time to say a couple of things about this. First, remember we said we want to pay attention throughout Nehemiah of, of, of the skills of a leader. Here's something we find. First of all, you see that he knows how to communicate to a variety of people. 
He knows how to communicate to a king. May the king live forever. He knows to make sure, you know, that, that, that he says just the right things without saying too much. He knows he has to craft it for a king. But then he also knows how to craft it for those who are going to build a wall, that we're going to do this together, that God's on our side and the king is on our side as well. And he knows how to communicate to his enemies, right? He doesn't beat around the bush. He's just like, no, this is none of your business. Get out. He knows how to craft a message. He knows the importance of timing. He waited four months. Most of us, if we knew we were going to do it, all right, let's just get, let's take care of this. He waited. He waited until the right person was there and the queen. He waited once he got there to go investigate the walls to make sure that all of that was, uh, was, was true, what he had heard. He waited three days before he even did that. He waited. And then, as we've said before, he did it as a team. He did it in community. That's one thing for us to pay attention to, but there's also something else that struck me as I looked at this passage today, especially alongside chapter one. Like many of you, um, when I watch TV, uh, I like to flip through the channels some, and I'm always reminded of what Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, that, that for men, uh, what's always important when they have the remote is not what's on, it's what else is on. And so we're always just kind of flipping through, you know, surely maybe there's something a little bit better, so we just keep going. And uh, you would suspect, I, I suppose, that sometimes what kind of holds me up as I'm flipping through the channels is something on the religious channel. I, I, I oftentimes want to stop there and just see what's being said. Sometimes it's because I really agree with it. A lot of times it's because I don't agree with it, but I just want to be angry. You ever do that? Uh, you just kind of want to be mad for a little while. Anybody ever do that? It's not healthy. I wouldn't suggest it, but I just do it anyways. But, but a lot of times then what I, what I end up stopping at is a Pentecostal preacher. And you can ask my wife. I mean, she'll come in and after about 10 minutes, she's like, what are you doing? And why are you watching this? And, and there's something. It's not because I'm a preacher per se, though I'm sure that has something to do with it. It's because it, it, it kind of transplants me back to my growing up, transplants me back to my college, a Pentecostal college, back to the very first place I ever preached, which was a, uh, which is in a Pentecostal church, and I get transfixed by it. Now, I know that some of you think that I am a Pentecostal preacher, I, but the only reason you think that is because you are very Presbyterian, <laughs> right? Because sometimes you think, oh, gee whiz, he preaches for so long. He's so Pentecostal. I'm here to tell you, about the time I wrap up, the usual Pentecostal preacher hasn't even read the scripture yet. Okay? That's just, it just, that's just intro, by and large. Some of you think, oh, well, you're so loud, right? And that's just like a Pentecostal. They're so loud. My, uh, my grandfather, uh, who was a Pentecostal preacher in the Assemblies of God, he would get so worked up, so loud, so red in the face, so sweaty. that My mom says she was always just scared to death that he was going to have a heart attack right up there. I mean, she was just, I mean, Pentecostals get into things. But it's not just the style that makes something Pentecostal. It's also what kind of the, the things that they see in Scripture and that they lift up off of its pages. Every tradition has that. Presbyterians have certain things that they see. Roman Catholics have certain things that they see. But Pentecostals do as well. And I'll be honest with you, this doesn't always happen. But it happened this week as I kept looking at this particular passage. I pray that you would bear with me here. Don't get upset if I get loud, but I couldn't 
help but begin to see that there, not yet, that there is, did anybody read that? Good. That there is something remarkably Pentecostal about this passage. And I'll be honest with you that the reason why I started thinking about it was because he started talking about there's a sense that Nehemiah has a vision. And one of the things that Pentecostals from the very beginning in the 20th century that they always would look back to is Joel chapter 2. Because in Joel chapter 2, it says that the old men will dream dreams and the young men will have visions. And one One of the things that we know in the Pentecostal world is if they were looking at this particular passage, that they would begin to see this vision that Nehemiah had been given. And they would begin to say, anytime, I mean anytime, that you have been given a vision from the Almighty God, that there are going to be those who are going to oppose it. There are going to be those who tell you it is not going to happen. There are going to be those like Satan, like old Slewfoot himself, who are going to tell you that there's no way that that vision, that that mission, that that promise is for you. But you need to keep moving on, brothers and sisters, and not believe in what those things have to say. Because soon enough, if you begin to believe it, you will start making excuses. You will start saying, maybe it wasn't for me. Maybe I am too impaired. Maybe I am too imperfect. Maybe I am too insignificant to ever do what God has told you to do. But in those moments, sisters and brothers, I want you to hear what someone has told me, which is that what God God originates, God orchestrates. Let me say it one more time. What God originates, God orchestrates, which means that if he has promised it to you, he will see it through you. You need a God-sized vision because a God-sized vision says that the only way it will get done is if God is with you. A God-sized vision that tells you every enemy, even the one inside of yourself, must be told to get out of the way because God is on the move. You need a God-sized vision. Hear me now, brothers and sisters, because only a God-sized vision can restore the walls that have been torn down, can restore relationships that have crumbled, can restore a person who has been crushed by the world. When you have a Nehemiah-like sized faith and a God-sized vision, there is nothing that God cannot do through you. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now that... that. Now I am out of practice, which means I am out of breath. (laughs) But this is what they would do. And they would begin to pull this out of this importance of faith of this importance of believing that God is so much bigger than you. But no matter what, at any time, you will have those who will tell you that you can't do it. Now, don't get nervous. Because there is also a Presbyterian sermon in this chapter. Now... What I've noticed in practicing this is that I keep getting more Pentecostal than I should. The Presbyterian sermon is not quite as loud, but it is no less significant. You see, Presbyterians know that God doesn't give someone a vision without also giving him or her the brain to help figure out how that vision might come true. 
Nehemiah thought this through. He prayed it through, but he also planned. He didn't just show up with knees scarred from praying. He also showed up with a sense of exactly the logistics that were going to have to happen. He had the right personnel in the room, a firm timeline as to how long the project would take, as to the letters that he would need for a safe and successful journey, with the knowledge of exactly what kind of timber he would need, who it was who was in charge of the timber, and how much timber he needed to be able to fulfill these things. He not only thought about the timber for the walls, for the gate, but for his own home as well. There was no I that was not dotted, no T that was not crossed. Not only that, of course, but once he arrives, he does not just tell us that he inspected the wall he gives us a point-by-point point route that he took. Do you hear this? These are minutes that he gave us. By the valley gate, past the dragon spring, to the dung gate, to the fountain gate, by the king's pool. He could have just told you, I inspected the wall, but that's not precise enough. It's not planned enough. It's not pragmatic enough. And it is certainly not Presbyterian enough. He thought through all of these things. He knew that according to the history books, those people who were against him had no share or no claim and no historic right in Jerusalem. Without question, as you read through the second chapter, you discover that Nehemiah is absolutely a Presbyterian, but he is also a Pentecostal. You see, what we have to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, is if we want to further the mission of God, then we have to hold both of those in tension. And all of us tend towards one side or the other. We have some Pentecostal-like folks here. But we got a lot more Presbyterians which means that we are going to err more often than not on the side of what is logical, what makes sense, and what exactly we can do. I love what Mark Roberts says. He talked about this. I've been in a lot of church budget meetings just like this. This is the time Stevie thinks. He says, on the one side are the visionaries, i.e. the Pentecostals, who urge us to trust God for big things and not be so cautious. And on the other side are the pragmatists who argue for the wisdom of fiscal prudence. And we need both. We need both of these things. And we need to know what we have a tendency towards. Here's the honest truth. The Pentecostals, you know which sermon they need to hear? The Presbyterian sermon. I'm not just going to take whatever you say that it's from the Lord. I'm going to discern it in community and make sure that that is really true. And we're going to think through this thing. And the, Pente and the Presbyterians need to hear a Pentecostal sermon that says it's not all about what you can figure out and do of your own accord. It's also about what kind of vision has God given it to you and what God originates God orchestrates. So what does this look like in your life? Let me just say a couple things and then I'll close. That's always, by the way, what Pentecostal preacher says, which means we've only got one more hour left. Here is... <laughs> we need to be prudent. We need to plan. But there will be times when we need to be Pentecostal as well in this, just like Nehemiah. 
There are times in our lives when we know the promise of God, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and that we have grace. But quite frankly, for the accountants and the engineers within us, grace never comes up on the ledger. It is a hard thing to genuinely believe. And there will be voices that come from the outside, but more often than not, it's the enemy within you that keeps saying, no, 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 that promise is not for you. And in that moment, you need to get Pentecostal on those enemies and say, no, this promise is true for me. I am loved by God, and I am a sinner saved by grace. And it's also true when it comes to the mission that we are on. I love this story that I heard just this very week about a Presbyterian who she was uh, um, she was at, at the community pool, and she was there, and she befriended a, 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 someone who was next to her, a neighbor, uh, and, and, and the neighbor was pregnant. And the neighbor told her, look, I don't, have, uh, I don't really have any family or friends here. And so the ZPC said in her mind, okay, I'm going to deliver a meal. I'm going to get her a meal. That's loving your neighbor. That's good. That's right. That's wonderful. But then she found out that the woman was actually the wife of a potential Colts player. And when she heard that, she thought, oh no, I can't make a meal for her because if I do that, she's just going to think I'm trying to get in good with her because of who her husband is or that I'm trying to get tickets. And so she started to logically come up with lots of great rationale as to why she shouldn't love her neighbor. She had all those great excuses. And then finally she said, okay, forget it. I'm going to shut that down. And she went and she gave her food once. And then she went and she gave her food again. And she said, I am going to continue to give no matter what. And she got tickets to a Colts game. (laughs) Now, I'm totally lying. I don't think she did though. But there are going to be logical, rational voices that tell us to not pursue the mission of God. And we need to tell those voices, if I can say it so abruptly, to shut up. But then also, it seems to me, as a church, we need to realize that while it is good and right, and we will be, there's a reason I'm Presbyterian, because I like the logic of it. I like the practicality of it. I like the prudence and the wisdom of it. But there will be times when, if we are truly following a God-sized vision, that we are going to take steps of faith that are going to feel risky. I've thought about that a lot. I promise you I'm not going to bring up the building stuff every week during Nehemiah, but I want to bring it up here because here's what I want you to know. I said something to the first architects that we had and the second architects that we had at the beginning of their time with us, which is this. On the one hand, whatever you do, it better have some sense of practicality to it. Because if this is pie in the sky, it will not fly. Right? I knew it would not work. But I also told them that it better be bold and it better stretch us beyond what we think we can do on our own. Because if we see this plan and we think, all right, I think we can do this, then it probably is not the right plan. If we propose this plan and everyone says, okay, this is great, and nobody asks any hard questions, then it is not the right plan. If I bring forward this plan and there are no naysayers and nobody who thinks, man, they have lost their ever-loving minds, then it is the wrong plan. Don't get as many amens off of that one. Because a God-sized plan is always going to push you beyond what you think we can do. 
And my hope and my prayer is that a week before we propose this, that I can hardly sleep or hardly eat because I am so scared and anxious that we have planned something too big and too costly. Because only then will I know that we have started listening not just to what I think we can do or what we think we can do, but to what God says he can do through us. We do not check our brains when we walk into the sanctuary, but neither should we check our faith in a God who can do more than what we could ever imagine. So as we move forward, my hope and prayer is that for all of us, that we would hold these two tensions, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, head, heart, visionary, pragmatist, that we will hold both of these together just like Nehemiah did. It's one of the most amazing things about Nehemiah. He was able to hold both of those things in tension. And as we do so, we will do so much more for God's kingdom than we could ever do on our own and certainly that we could ever do without God. Amen? Let us pray. God, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would be with us even now. Give us the grace and the strength and the courage to move forward. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, sisters and brothers.